Classic Comics Forum podcast presents Origin Stories, the Comics That Shaped Us, Episode 3, with special guest star MDG. Origin Stories! Origin Stories! Where did we come from? How did we get here? These are the stories that made us the heroes that we are today! So, uh, welcome to the next episode of Origin Stories. I'm here with Marty, and uh, we're going to hear his origin story as a comic collector with the 10 issues that shape your journey. I'm really excited to hear about this. Of course, I had you on the podcast before, so I, we've talked some about your history in comics, but I'm really looking forward to sort of, um, I really enjoy the more personal, you know, experience of uh of getting to know how a collector got to the point they're at now. So I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to it. Okay. Great. And um, we could just jump right in if you want to start with your first book. Yeah, well, um, it's one of the first books I have, and this is not the copy of it. I bought it later on. But it's uh, Batman 181, first uh, Poison Ivy. And I kind of remember getting like three or five Batman comics from my uncle, um, you know, when I was probably six or seven. And, uh, you know, this was one of them. And, you know, it just kind of started me out. I think one of the first things I remember was, you know, this splash page where they kind of like a, a uh, art exhibit or a pop art exhibit mm -hmm. that shows that. And, had this great pinup. The pinup is missing. In the center page. <laughs> in the center <laughs> spread. And, you know, it's just started me out. Um, I don't remember if this was right around the time the TV show came on or just before it. But, uh, yeah, I started out as a, you know, just Batman and Superman fan because I used to watch the Superman TV show uh, with my uncle. And it was just... Uh, you know, getting into that at that point, you know, where, uh, you know, Batman and Superman are just kind of loomed large, like Frankenstein and Dracula right. um, at that time. And, uh, you know, I would just, you know, I just, so I just started reading those, but uh, I would get books and just kind of like read them to death, you know? So, um, and this was, again, one of the first ones I really remember. Um, Soon after that, I started buying stuff off the racks, and this one actually is my copy um, <laughs> that I bought. This is JLA 47. It is not in the best shape at all. <laughs> um, but it's part two of maybe the second or third JLA JSA team up. Right. So this kind of introduced me to. I knew Superman and Batman, and I'd seen ads for um, Green Lantern and some of the other characters, but, uh, you know, Dr. Fate, Dr. Midnight, I'm not sure what, you know, wasn't sure what those were, where they came out of. And um, Spectre's in here, too, which I did know from, um, again, the same uncle had given me a copy of Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Comic Book Heroes. Okay. That had a Spectre story in it. And again, this is at the time, go, go, Chuck's Batman front and center. Um, and even though it was the second part of a two-parter, I was just, you know, right into it. You know, I could, there was enough explanation to say, okay, there's this antimatter man and the specter is between Earth 1 and Earth 2 and pushing them apart. And all the, the Justice Society and Justice League have to get um, the antimatter man out of there and and uh, again separate earth one and earth two so i mean it's just a lot of ideas yeah you know kicking around and a lot of characters but um you know just kind of opened up to uh the larger uh i don't want to say b-list heroes but you know if you weren't superman or batman to me you were a b-list hero and uh, just what was going on um 
with that. And, uh, you know, Sikowski and Green, one of my favorite uh, art teams on there. So I don't know how this, why I still have this book, because obviously the other comics I had around that time, I don't consciously recall getting rid of them or my mom getting rid of them. But just as it's a mystery how those disappeared, it's a mystery why this one. <laughs> yeah, I've got books like that from my early days. Um, I, the New Mutants Summer Special from 1985 mm -hmm. uh, was a year after I started. And for some reason, I have my original copy and it's the cover's detached. Like, as I used to read it over and over. But the, all the other, you know, most of the other comics I got at that time, I don't know what happened to them. Like, I have replacements for them. Um, one thing I'm curious to ask you about is when I talked with Roquefort Rager in the last episode, um, we talked about the experience of new readers now versus when we were younger. And it just strikes me like uh, when you were reading this, you're getting introduced to these new heroes and you had, you know, the book that had introduced you to Spectre. But with people now, like if you're a kid now, you read about it, you can just go online and there's like the entire publishing history of these characters. And I'm not sure if that's better, um, a better experience now. I feel like the, the, the experience of discovery uh, that we had is not something they can really have any longer. Yeah, and I think it's, what year did you start reading comics? The 84. Okay, so I'm, I'm already in for you know, close to 20 years at that point. And I, I could not understand, like in the 90s though, how people were even exposed to comics because I would go down to the, there was like a local candy store toy shop on the corner that, you know, a spinner rack and a couple, you know, other places, other stationary stores. So I would see them all over, you know, and um, again, you know, I had an uncle who kind of introduced me to a few things but it was just like always around and um you know and again the batman tv show just kind of raised awareness all of a sudden so there were like you know magazine articles and uh, newspaper articles but you, you just like find things and you know you kind of get what you can from house ads and um you know letter column uh the thing is I, I was never like a very steady reader of anything. So I started out, you know, reading DCs and I always bought like, you know, Superman, Justice League, Batman were kind of like my favorites, but uh, I was just as likely to buy uh, Dell ghost stories or, uh, you know, uh, I was like more of a monster kid. So it was uh, like gold key, Ripley's believe it or not, true weird, uh, true ghost stories. Um, obviously, the Warren books. Then um, I think I was in fourth grade. Uh, a kid lent me an issue of Mad, which um, my cousin had read, but my uh, mother was not happy about it. So I, you know, didn't ask about it. But, uh, uh, you know, like I said, a friend lent me a copy, and I was around 67 or so. Um, he lent me the one that had the first Star Trek parody in it. So that'll, you know, kind of give you the date. And then I start, you know, I kind of had a run of that going through uh, the mid seventies. Um, just this also, such a different, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. You go. I was just gonna say it's such a different experience because I remember, you know, and this was quite a bit later, but I remember in, you know, 84, 85, um, being a kid and we still had the spinner racks at a few places. I encountered comics in a, uh, from a spinner rack at a drugstore. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a story that like you could have had from any time period up until the nineties and now it's completely gone. And we used to go to Walden books and they'd have a spinner rack there. And so we go to the bookstore. That's how I got my comics for the first like two years was spinner racks yeah. uh, before I really could, go to a comic book store, but I remember mad, like it, it's interesting you mentioned that because I have these memories of, you know, summer vacation and going to the five and time on the corner and getting the new mad or the new cracked and reading it with my friends and stuff. Um, it's just interesting. It's almost like there's a certain timelessness to that experience. That's just sort of like 
pre-internet, <laughs> post-internet, totally different worlds. And so even though I was in the 80s and you were in the 60s, it wasn't that different. It's And we're both like, compared to what happens now, it's just, I, I don't really understand how kids now would, would really encounter comics other than some of the movies, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, even more than that, it was um, pre-comic shop, post-comic shop. Because I'm trying to think what the first comic book store I saw was. And there was one in Nyack, New York, um, that I went to a couple times. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I, I really can't remember what was the first one that says, you know, this is a comic book store. This is what we do. You know, it would be uh, magazine stores or used bookstores that might have a section that grew and, you know, and, and took over. But again, that was, you know, early, mid-70s. Yeah. Um, you know, also, I was very much would go to the library and get um, collections, because around this time, Nostalgia Press was coming out, so there were collections like Dick Tracy and Crazy Cat, and you started getting some of the uh, histories started to come out. Um, nothing like now. I mean, you know, you could probably fill two feet of shelf space with every book on comics that was, you know, available at the time, unlike now. So, um, you know, I was interested in like older strips and things that were going on. So, um, and one of the big ones uh, was Les Daniels' book, Comics, The History of Comics in America. And that and other things led me to my number three, which is R. Crumb's head comics. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, this was, I think, 70, this is 72 printing, so I was about 13. Um, and even though, I don't know if technically I could or couldn't buy this legally, I obviously did, and you know, you said a Walden books. I, it might have been in a Walden book or a uh, there was a local one called Aldine's Books in White Plains or Brentano's. But I picked it up, you know, just at a mass market, um, you know, mass market comic book. And you know, I'd seen Keep on Trucking and um, you know the you know T-shirts and obviously the uh, the you know, Big Brother and the Holding Company album cover by Crumb. And, you know, there were, there were things kind of all over, but I'd never seen an actual underground or like full stories. And of course, you know, this isn't nearly as um, deep and, you know, not necessarily his best work. There's a long Fritz story in here. But this was, you know, just a huge, uh, huge influence on me. And there's like a, somewhere in here, there's like a, ink thumb stain uh, thumbprint of mine because I would just like, you know, copy drawings out of here. And, you know, so I, I started reading Underground and National Lampoon and still kind of staying with Warrens and Mads and things like that. But I also, you know, started hearing about EC because, you know, EC had been gone 15, close to 20 years at this point. Um, no comic book stores. I hadn't started going to comic shows yet or conventions as they were. But, you know, in, uh, again, the Les Daniels book and um, other things I'd heard, uh, you know, just kind of read about this comic book line that was, you know, this terribly horror, you know, just totally, um, objectionable horror books, but, you know, mad remains from this whole line. And the big nostalgia press book came out around this time. I hadn't gotten that yet. But there was kind of a convergence where um, I'd seen the answer to the nostalgia press book in a lampoon. That lampoon had a story um, based on George Wallace that was basically an EC pastiche. And around that same time, I picked up a Warren issue of Creepy. And of course, you know, the Warrens were a third ads. <laughs> and one of the ads was for the first 
attempt to start reprinting uh, ECs in some kind of systematic form. Uh, this was a thing called East Coast Comics. It was a buck. And their first issue was the last issue of Tales from the Crypt, which when EC folded, they actually had been planning to do a fourth horror title um, called The Crypt of Terror. Um, okay. But, you know, that just went out as the last issue of Tales from the Crypt. So this was like, except for like the couple stories in the last Daniel's book, the first time I saw like an EC story and actually, you know, were, was able to read, you know, the four issues or the four stories in an issue. And uh, I think I was like 13, 14 at this time. And, you know, again, I read this to death. It was just, oh my God, EC, EC, EC. It's all I would think of. It. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, the, what was drawing you to first the underground comics and also the EC? Uh, just wondering, like, how, imagine, you know, I had a very different experience because I was really starting in the mid 80s. And so with the independent comics and, you know, we get Watchmen and, the Dark Knight, all this stuff, but I feel like at the time you were reading the comics code restrictions on mainstream comics much have been much more effect. So I'm guessing seeing these comics had a very different sort of uh, impact on you than when I go to the store and it was just like, it was just sort of another sort of thing on the stands. Yeah, I mean, you know, because of the way comics were with, you know, you know with the code, but, you know, comics were just so stayed in, you know, squeaky clean. So it was either, you know, Superman. I, you know, probably only read four Marvels maybe, you know, during the, you know, till I was like in my twenties. Um, and if I picked up a Marvel, it meant there were no DCs on the spinner rack, you know, wherever I was uh, on vacation or something. But just the idea that something would be overtly violent or, um, you know, have like in, in some of these EC stories, these really dark, um, dark stories about, you know, men and women and couples and, you know, killing each other and jealousy and hate. And there was one, you know, there's one in here drawn by Joe Orlando about a guy who's just like, uh, he's married to his woman and his in-laws live with him and they keep telling him he's got to get ahead and nothing he could, he could do, you know, to, you know, he could, he's not successful at anything and you got to get ahead and you got to get ahead and you kind of telegraphs what happens at the end of that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just so different than, you know, what was out there. And, uh, you know, just like with the new music at the time, just, knowing that these undergrounds were out there and there's things going on, it just kind of attracted me to it. Um, so around this time, 74, 75, 76, is when in New York City, you started to get some of the big comic shows and a big comic show at that time might draw 2,000, 3,000 people. Um, and, you know, I'd go to one and Joe Simon and Jack Kirby and, you know, all these people would be there, but I would like make a beeline to like Bobby London and Sherry Flanagan and Dennis Kitchen, you know, some of the people from the underground who were there, um, and, you know, I started collecting like sketches and things like that. Um, and also I could buy some undergrounds there because obviously they were not in stores or, you know, uh, right. you know, drug stores or pharmacies or stationary stores where I lived. And of course they had ads in the back for, um, you know, the different dealers. And the main one being that I used was uh, Krupp Comic Works, which was a division of Kitchen Sink, you know, Dennis Kitchen's company. And, you know, I'd get a, uh, a catalog and it would be, you know, a 36 page catalog would be like 12 pages of comics and 12 pages of drug paraphernalia and, you know, 12 pages of Carlos Castaneda paperbacks, and t shirts, and things like that. And I would mail order it. And, you know, you had to sign this thing that says, I am 
legal of age to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm over 18. And, you know, of course I wasn't, um, you know, and it was like really nerve wracking just signing that little coupon, <laughs> but, uh, you know, putting an order in and going to the post office and getting, a, you know, a mail order to uh, send away and, you know, picking up, you know, then getting a package of like 12 at a time. And it was just great. I would just devour that. Um, so of the uh, undergrounds, I, I just put this one out, one of my favorites, which is Skull Number Six. Um, this, uh, you know, Skull Again was a horror anthology, and I gravitated more toward things like Skull and Slow Death and some of the other horror adventure undergrounds more so than even like Zack or Bijou, the, you know, funny ones. Um, but this had a Richard Corbin, you know, it was half uh, Greg Irons and half Richard Corbin. It's like a two-part two part story. Um, later reading, it was very Lovecraftian. Um, and again, the other thing that got me into Underground was the creepy that had the ad for the EC reprint also had what I think was Corbin's first story for Warren, or one of them. And I just went, crazy over uh, Corbin's work. Um, so, you know, he would be in Creepy and Eerie, but everything else was um, Fantagore, Grimwet, or, you know, just other underground. So right. that was the thing that drove me toward that. Um, I find this all really interesting because it's so yeah. outside of my experience. Like, I, I've seen Skull, like, I've, I know what it is but I've never read it. And it's the same with a lot of the undergrounds. It's just, um, you know, by the time I was collecting, like I mentioned, undergrounds weren't, it, there was the independent comics you could get at the comic stores. And yeah. I think some of those people had sort of moved into that space, but it was almost like I kind of heard that it had existed, but I never really saw it or experienced it. And now, you know, it's like, um, uh, the few that I've read, like I have, an, I have a like a later printing of Zap Zero and a couple things like that, and I read them, you know, uh, in like in the '90s or early 2000s, and I just sort of like didn't understand what I was looking at, um, yeah. and I feel like there's a whole thing that I just can't plug into that I just like I needed to be there to get it. Yeah, and you know, and I when I talk about undergrounds, probably from, it's really only from like 67 to maybe 74, 75, where you really had that kind of boom and bust of, uh, you know, the San Francisco artists and, um, you know, head shops where, you know, there's the distribution and, you know, some things in like alternative weeklies, um, you know, and then again, around that time is when the comic shops start popping up. So there's more of an outlet for stuff that's, it's not really as underground as it was. It's, you know, more just another ground level, you know, comics. So the independents uh, that came out like, you know, Sabre and, you know, things right. like that. Um, but yeah, you know, my initial uh, ambition as a cartoonist was to be published in an underground before I was legally uh, able to buy them, which didn't happen, but uh, not for lack of trying. <laughs> um, and part of that was uh, when I was visiting my grandmother in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, there's a, there was a great newsstand, you know, uh, magazine shop near where she lived. And, that's where I had gotten, you know, I'd go there and I'd get mad and creepy and eerie and, you know, cracked or something like that. But then I was there one year and then in that little part where there, you have to go through the little like half door to get to because it's mm -hmm. the old things, I saw this on the stand, um, Arcade, you know, the Comics Review, which was uh, edited by uh, Bill Griffith and Art Spiegelman. And it was an attempt to come up with a more slick, um, easily available package, you know, with many of the, you know, the main underground cartoonists. 
Um, and I think the first two issues were there right next to each other. So I picked those up right away and got a uh, subscription to it. But this was, you know, these people like, uh, like Crumb and uh, Spiegelman doing his more experimental stuff before he did Mouse, where it's a lot more about the form of comics. Um, you know, Gilbert Shelton, it's just like uh, everybody kind of at the top of their game. Um, and the people who were doing the best work here, like uh, there's a really good zippy story in here by Bill Griffith. And yeah, Bill Griffith is still doing really good stuff, not just the zippy strip, but uh, Invisible Ink, the story about he did about his uh, mother. And uh, he did a graphic biography of Schlitzy the Pinhead. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's still putting out uh, great stuff. And, you know, this was, again, a, just a big influence on me. And they had a thing where they were looking for submissions. So I tried to submit a couple things there that were pretty damn crude. Um, and got a, you know, a nice uh, rejection note, <laughs> a nice handwritten rejection note from Bill Griffith. Yeah, when I was, um, again, I like, I feel like I missed this whole, this whole thing. Uh, and by the time I was aware of comics, um, you know, I, I knew Bill Griffith from Zippy the Pinhead in the comics page of my newspaper. And because it was so weird compared to everything else that every day I would read the comic strip, like for breakfast. I'd read the comics page and I'd read Zippy the Pinhead and half of the days I'd find it incredibly funny. And the other half of the days I'd just sit there looking at it like I'm missing something here. I know I'm, I know this is funny to someone, <laughs> but <laughs> don't understand the context. Um, yeah, but, but I feel like I just, I just, I find this all fascinating. I just this window into this whole, you know, scene that, that almost feels to me like it's, I don't want to say it's vanished because I get a slight hint of the vibe. Like I go to, now that I'm self-publishing my own comic, I go to like the Masters Independent Comics Expo, which is a mm -hmm. show that's only people that make their own comics. And I get some of that feel, I think, there. But otherwise, it's just it's like a vanished world to me. I don't know. Well, yeah, there's just a lot more out now. And, you know, I'm only now getting back into it. Because you, know, you see uh, comic shops opening that don't, don't have Marvel or DC, or that's not 90% of the business. It's more like these alternative things coming out in different formats. And, you know, again, I still, you know, I, I, I'm still not buying a ton of stuff. I, it, it takes a lot for me to make that commitment. Um, but, uh, and again, the quality just varies widely and stuff. But, you know, the, you know but it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of people doing stuff out there. Um, you know, the whole area of autobiographical comics is like, you know, all over. And again, um, one of the things I almost pulled here was American Splendor number one, you know, by Harvey Picar. That's um, like about the only one that I have read much of. I have a few issues of American Splendor and I keep wanting to like get the rest of them. Um, yeah, there's like, I have several different things in my head I want to <laughs> because like I just I found your experience there reminded me when I was a kid when I was 13 I think um it, which was in 1986 and I read this like Jim Shooter had written this big thing for the price guide about his experiences of course he started writing for DC when he was 13 yeah. so, like wow you can do that so I started submitting stories to Marvel when I was 13 and I'd get these rejection letters like thanks for your dumb story uh, <laughs> You know, um, and I was sure that if I did, like, I was like, this is a, this is great. It's, you know, ROM meets Iron Man and they fight the human torch. Why, why aren't they buying this? Um, yeah. Well, it, it's what you were doing was a little bit better than, than my idea. But. <laughs> well, you know, you're only seeing a, a piece of it here because while I wasn't buying, um, you know, a lot of mainstream 
comics. I was, you know, I was picking up like fanzines, you know, I, you know, besides like the buyer's guide and the comic reader, you know, that were like kind of the news zines, but things like Comics Crusader, where they'd have uh, interviews with uh, contemporary and older, uh, older artists like, uh, you know, Joe Staten, you know, next to a, something, an interview with, you know, Jack Bender or something like that. You know, of course, around this time, uh, early mid 70s, Warren came out with the spirit, which was again another, uh, you know, another influential or just, you know, you know, something, something that did not look like what was out there. Um, you know, also at this time, even though I had somehow missed the entire run of Swamp Thing, I became a huge Bernie Wrightson fan. Um, you know, and he, after he left uh, Swamp Thing, was doing, you know, a lot of work for Warren. Um, you know, some, you know, just wonderful stuff. And, you know, his Color of the Creature book. And, um, you know, I, I picked up things like Kaluta Shadow. Um, again, usually at a store or, you know, some kind of back issue thing, you know, very little off the stands. You know, I mean, I knew about like the Neil Adams stuff and Stranko, but, you know, it just didn't, um, just didn't connect with me like other stuff. Um, and it wasn't until I went to college, um, a, a, a guy I hadn't known, but we met through uh, the, the Campus Humor magazine. He came up to my dorm room and he goes, uh, is, is that a Mike Kaluta drawing on your wall? I said, yeah. <laughs> and we just like started talking for you know, hours and uh, you know, we became, you know, very, you know, we're still very close friends. But, um, you know, he's, he just had a huge collection of comics and, you know, we just started talking and talking to him and, you know, another friend that, that I met in college, I started going, you know, going back to my Silver Age roots because the, there was a comic shop in Syracuse that we would go to and, you know, pick up the new stuff, but then they had a bunch of boxes of, you know, 60s and early 70s, um, DCs and Marvel, you know, everything with a uh, colored price sticker and for things like Hawkman and, you know, kind of, again, the B-tier, um, B-tier DC heroes, it was like 75 cents an issue, um, you know, for the 60s one. And, you know, I, I just started, you know, I'd pick up four new books and four old books and just started kind of building that up again because um, I've never had an appreciation of a lot of that Silver Age mainstream art. Um, I remember one time, um, one Sunday morning, we, would, we got the, we'd get the Sunday newspaper in the dining hall and there was um, Parade Magazine that Gannett used to put out, which was like their Sunday magazine. And one time it had a uh, Superman cover on it. And, you know, then my two friends are there and they go, oh, look, you know, it's a Kurt Swan Superman. And I go, yeah. And the guy goes, yeah, with Vinnie Coletta inking. And I'm looking at them and goes, how can you tell that? All, all the superhero art, it just all looks totally the same to me. <laughs> and, you know, that's when I started really being able to pick up, you know, Swan and Fantino and Anderson and Cooper and just being able to uh, pick out their stylistic differences and just really building up again a nice silver age dc reader copy um collection that you know i still love you know and uh, just kind of going back and rereading that yeah that's great so book number six all right this is the only this is the one that's probably going to go out of publishing order. Um, again, when I was in college, I was at a small show and spotted this, Harvey Kurtzman's Jungle Book. Oh, okay. Um, you know, coming out of underground to all idolized Kurtzman and of course EC and Mad. Um, I was, you know, very interested in Kurtzman, but, you know, it was hard to find his stuff back then. I mean, there was Annie Fanny and there was the Mad paperbacks that had his uh his 
uh, the ones he edited in there. But this is, you know, a book length orig paperback original done for an adult audience. Um, and, you know, it's just probably my favorite piece by him. I've got a, uh, again, Kitchen Sink put out a uh, reprint of it, large, larger size, mostly from the original art. And it's, you know, I, I just, you know, love his style. It's just like, I don't know how much you can tell here, but, you know, very expressionistic and just has a lot of movement and life and his uh, observations on, you know, TV and media and, you know, and just the way he would set up jokes. It's, it's just great. You know, Kurtzman's, you know, probably, you know, one of my favorite creators ever. Um, and again, uh, Dennis Kitchen being a huge fan of his, uh, you know, put out Jungle Book and then um, his Hey Look, uh, his Hey Look, uh, a collection of those strips that he had done for Timely in the 40s uh, and Humbug and Trump. And it's just, you know, all this material that's like Mad, but again, he was trying to get a little more sophisticated for a different audience. Um, sometimes successful, usually artistically successful, usually not very successful commercially, but uh, again, it's just, you know, you know, some of my favorite stuff ever. That's interesting, like, I've not heard of this. Uh, I mean, I know who Harvey Kurtzman is, but Jungle Book, I've, I've not heard of this. And, you know, last episode, Roquefort Raider had a couple things that I was pretty iffy on because they were from France. Um, but this is the first one where I like legitimately just not heard of that. Um, so I, I'm really interested. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, it can't, I'm trying to think when it was originally published. Okay, 59, 1959. And I think it only went through like one printing. Again, Valentine was pretty um, lucky with the Mad paperback reprints, which again, that was something else where during the 60s, you could go into a uh, bookstore or a stationery store and see a paperback spinner rack that would have half a dozen, you know, Mad paperbacks in there. Um, and also they, put out, Valentine put out about four or six versions like the Mad Paperbacks, but of the EC horror and science fiction books. Um, two of them were anchored by uh, the fact that they were all Ray Bradbury stories. But I guess those didn't sell like Mad because again, they only did about half a dozen of them. And I think they only went through one or two printings each. Whereas, you know, the mad paperbacks were constantly in print as I was growing up. Um, so, you yeah, know, this would bring us up to about uh, the early 80s. And I was kind of getting back more into mainstream comics, not too much. I mean, there was also um, the independence like first comics and eclipse you know were coming out and you know picking up things like american flag and zot and johnny quest um and i don't have my copy here but the one dc book that i was a real uh influencer that really impressed me was ambush bug number one no i um, might actually have a copy here Hold on. okay <laughs> it just occurred to me i think i actually have this i hope i'm right uh oh where is it i thought i had it in this box right next to me okay <laughs> Almost, i have a copy of ambush bug one that has a date stamp on it because i remember being like that's unusual for a comic that late to still have a date stamp on the cover i'm sorry yeah. huge disappointment i thought i was gonna pull it out <laughs> sorry i didn't interrupt you can cut um, it in later you can find it. all right okay <laughs> we'll just cut it in. um but yeah because, you know, one of the things about the mainstream books is they were like kid stuff and that started taking themselves seriously, then kind of overshot it. Now we're taking ourselves really seriously. And 
Giffen was like the only person out there, it seemed like, who was saying, well, a lot of this is pretty silly. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, let's look at this, you know, from a, you know, different angle. Um, and I, I loved the art style he started to adopt around the time of Ambush Bug, um, where I know, you know, people give him, uh, give him a little grief that it was very much uh, based on, uh, it's Jorge Munoz style, a South American artist. And, you know, it, it definitely is, but uh, it was just like really nicely done. And, you know, that, you know, I would also started reading the Legion for the first time because of his artwork in there. Um, it was just really appealing to me. And he had uh, good luck with his inkers then. It was like Schaffenberger and Carl Kiesel and Larry Malstead. It just really worked together very well. But, um, you know, Ambush Bug was a son of Ambush Bug. Um, a couple of specials. Yeah, I, I just really enjoyed those. And, you know, as well as things like he did uh, Legion of Substitute Heroes, there was a special and then an issue of uh, DC Presents with the subs in it that was just really nicely done. Um, and I think it was working with Paul Levitz on some of those or Robert Lauren Fleming. Um, it just, you know, made a nice, uh, a good team. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned before we were on the air, whatever that means, um, that Ambush Bug was very early, one of, one of the early series that I started reading. The first issue happened to come out just a few months after I really started reading comics. And uh, so it introduced me to a bunch of stuff like Johnny DC, but also um, I loved it. Like uh, um, Cheeks the Toy Wonder, I, th I thought was hilarious. Uh, yeah, and for people who haven't read Ambush Bug, it's a big, it's something you should read, particularly because to me, Deadpool is just Ambush Bug, but not as funny. Like, I think Ambush Bug is basically, uh, it's got everything that Deadpool has got, except for uh, is sort of funnier. I, I feel like, I know that stylistically, when they created created Deadpool, they ripped off the way it looked from, from um, Death Master Terminator. Yeah. Personality-wise, you know, they clearly, it's Ambush Bug the whole, the whole way. Yeah, well, I liked, I think it was the third issue of uh, the Ambush Bug series where it was just like half page things where it's looking at, you know, silly or outdated concepts. So it would be, you know, like Egg Foo, Ace the Bad Hound, and they had Julie Schwartz, you know, <laughs> who was the editor, you know, of that book. But uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was hilarious um, and really nicely done. Again, you know, I was kind of, keeping track of what DC was doing because they were doing who's who at that time. Um, the first one and, you know, of course, Crisis, which, um, you know, <laughs> I, I have a friend who like has, I think like four different editions of Crisis and he, he just loves it. But, you know, I remember going through it and uh, I was talking to a friend again, I think they're just going to get rid of everything except Earth 1 or Earth 2. And then, like an issue later, I said, "I think they're going to get rid of Earth too." Too, I said, "Oh shit!" You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've. Yeah. Sun yeah. Earth for me, like I was just starting comics, and I was so confused when all of a sudden, <laughs> from one month to the next, the continuity just changed in all the titles because I wasn't reading Crisis; I was reading Superman, and then it was just like all of a sudden it ends and then he comes back, but he doesn't remember anything that I was just reading. And I gave up on DC superheroes for like 20 years. Well, actually forever. Cause I didn't <laughs> understand what was happening. It was supposed to make things simpler, but it was so confusing. Well, yeah. And you know, just getting rid of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman in the golden age, it just, I don't know, just does not seem right. <laughs> And since then, of course, I've gone back and, and I have the collected edition of yeah. on Infinite Earths. And it's even more confusing when you read it than it is if you haven't read it. So uh, it's just because it's like the story ends and then it's like, oh, but there's a new Earth that's been created. And then, every, and then they're trying to figure out where they are. And then the story ends again. But then it's like, no, nope, he comes back like a third time. And I'm like, 
Yeah, yeah. That, that's like where, just this is crazy. Yeah, that that that's what kind of just kind of turned me off of that kind of stuff. It just became like universe maintenance instead of storytelling, and it's you know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the the eighties is probably when I was heaviest into at least buying new stuff off the stand. But again, it was uh, you know, again, first comics and Pacific and Eclipse, you know, you know, Ms. Tree and Journey. There's just a lot of stuff, interesting stuff out there as opposed to the nineties where um things like Malibu and some of the other companies came out where it's like, okay, we're gonna do what Marvel and DC do was just like we're going to launch our own universe instead of let's just get some creators to do projects they like to do and you know see how they go. Which brings to the uh, number nine, I believe, which was uh, mechanics. Um, I had seen Love and Rocket on the stands, and uh, Fanographics had done a big presentation at a convention I was at, but. Leafing through it, it just didn't appeal to me. And I think I was hitting all the Mario and Beto pages with where the artwork was kind of crude. But when they put out a color version of uh, Jamie's earliest stories, and I mean, this, yeah, the artwork is just so beautiful. You know, it's just simple and graphic and naturalistic. And it just, you know, um, Kills me even then how like first time out of the box, and since then going back and looking at uh, Gilbert stuff, how the brothers were just able to just be up here, you know, automatically, you know, from the first time out. It's not like you know a few. It felt like they were floundering around. It was, it was, it's just amazing stuff. And I just read, uh, I guess Frogmouth, um, which came out a few years ago, I think it's called Frogman, something like that, one of uh, Jamie's collections. And it's just, you know, the, the way the characters have aged, but things go back and forth and just the stories and uh, just seeing these characters grow up, you know, they're all, they're all in their 50s now. Um, I don't know if they've ever reconciled why early on they were riding hover cycles and seeing dinosaurs, you know, but, uh, it really doesn't matter <laughs> because it's just so, you know, just so well done. Um, it's, it's oh, again, another blind spot. I have a couple collections of theirs. I'm looking at them right now. I can see them. They're taunting me. I've got uh, one that's called Angels and Magpies. And I, mm -hmm. um, I, I won it in a contest and it's signed by one of the brothers. And, um, I haven't I haven't read it through it. I've 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 opened it a few times, and uh, it, it um, almost feels a little intimidating to try and jump in. Uh, I just can't seem to find the right entry point for me. But um, it's something I keep meaning to because uh, from looking at the art, I know that I'm going to like the art quite a bit. It it reminds me of sort of a more mature i don't want to say adult but a more mature sort of like archie like dan de carlo there's a certain clean yeah. style that i really respond to um i'm just having trouble figuring out where to start like story-wise yeah and i don't know if um i'm sure there's probably checklists and lists of you know how this how everything lays out chronologically or you know and it might say what the best you know way to get in i think if you if you could find a collection of just the earliest ones you know, after, you know, this was a three issue, um, I was able to at least pick up for cover price or near, near it, I think from like issue seven on um, through that, their first iteration, kind of got out of it in the 90s, but um, getting back in and picking up some of the collections. Um, but yeah, it's interesting what you say about the Carlo because it, it's very, realistically drawn but very you know like Alex Toth very simple very graphic but then you know Maggie gets mad and you know smoke comes out and you know her teeth are just a you know, big zigzag and it you know but it just fits because it's cartoons you know it's comics and it, it just uh you know works that way yeah that's actually like that's the style like Toth is one of for me 
one of the two or three top artists of all time. I prefer that sort of graphic style to the more detailed stuff like like a Neil Adams and his influence mm -hmm. and all the sketchiness and all the detail. I think it makes it much harder to cartoon to tell the story. And so yeah. like, really respond to the to the simpler, like clean um, cartooning, you know, like cartooning. Yeah. Have you heard um, Paul Fricke, who's a artist he did uh, the fly when dc did the impact which was the uh, archie comics but he just started a podcast on alex tote um there's two oh, okay. out now and um you know he's, he's the first one's just kind of overview of who tote was and then the last one the second one was uh just 10 great stories to start with um and it's you know and he's going to do like deep dives and analysis. I guess there's video versions as well, um, but it's really well done. Uh, I'll have to check that out. Somewhere here, I've got the this gigantic, oversized, um, toth like giant book. I, I guess there's like two or three of them, but I've got one of them. Um, yeah. Time I see his work, it's just uh, it's just tremendous. Yeah, I, I know. I you know I picked up. I think it was called like Clinton Mac. I saw it at a antique store. It's, it was like one of the serials that ran on the Mickey Mouse Club, but you know, he did the artwork for the comic adaptation. And it's just, you know, and again, that's what they talk about in the podcast. A lot of times the stories are just, yeah, but uh, you know, the artwork just knocks it out of the park most of the time. He did a and, fair amount of romance work. Sometimes the inking is, he doesn't do his own inking on some of those, so it's not. Quite, yeah, you know, it's like uh, I've got one romance story where he did the pencils and Vince Coletta does the inks. So uh, it's not exactly the match you want, um, but uh, some of them is just it's tremendous. It's just uh, I just love his design aesthetic. Yeah. All right. So um, I think we're at the end. Number ten. We're at the end, and this is just kind of. Random, but I wanted to represent um, for a while there a friend of mine uh, at a bookstore, J and J Books, on Lake Avenue in Rochester. I'd go in there, and you know he'd buy collections, and he'd have all different stuff in there. But I went in there once and saw uh, this Hollywood Land uh, by Kim Deitch, and I had known Deitch for years. Um, you know his work, that is, uh, and was signed which was nice um but i had never read like a long form and this was actually a series of uh you know half page strips that were done in an uh, alternative newspaper but it's you know it's a fairly long story and you know again while i'd seen maybe eight ten page stories by him something this where he's really creating the world and you're diving in and it's just anything goes um you know even though i'd known his work for 20 years he just shot to the top of like you know one of my favorite cartoonists you know from that point on so you know he's probably uh with maybe dan close um the artist where as soon as he puts something out you know you know, pick it up right away. Um, it's just amazing stuff. It's just, you, you never know what you're going to get into, you know, because he always starts out like, well, you know, this is what happened. I was talking to my brother or something, you know, and we're walking down the street and then it just goes, <laughs> you know, and, you know, what's real and what's not. And, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm still not crazy about the way he draws. But, you know, as a storyteller and a cartoonist and just the stories, it's just fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting comment you just made. Like, um, I feel like, you know, the 90s get maligned for good reason. But one of the worst things that happened there is sort of the idea of the sort of style. And I think that's over substance. I feel like that's still carried on in a lot of mainstream stuff where a lot of people like don't see the like the difference between the glossy what it looks like and then the storytelling 
um, like some of those those books in the '90s, even the ones with the cool art, you, they're unreadable because it's like yeah. uh, there's no storytelling. So, like when you say there, you're not you don't really love the way his art looks, but his drawing looks. But the art is good because the story's telling is good. Um, yeah, in the '90s, you know, it's the stuff that's like drawn. You know, again, you could say image, but you know, but there's plenty at Marvel and DC where it's, you know, the drawing is just these totally out of proportion uh, figures and things just look like they're slapped on the page. And then this meticulous inking on it that doesn't make it look better. It's just like, it's just this, you know, why, why are you inking this thing so well instead of, fixing it you know why are you just yeah it? Like, to me some of the most unreadable comics maybe ever made it's a little hyperbole but maybe not are the first few issues of the jim lee x-men series you know when they because yeah. he would draw these like two-page spreads where it's just like a two-page of everyone standing and then there would be chris claremont with like 400 word balloons where he's trying to describe in the in the word balloons what the action is because there's no actual action on the page it's everyone standing there so yeah. we have to move the plot forward from one word balloon to the next in the dialogue because there's no movement in the artwork and uh, i feel like sometimes when i read new comics from the big two i feel like that's still happening where you know there's all these like poses and um, I hate, I hate the deconstructed widescreen storytelling where they're trying to emulate a movie because it's just like splash pages where it's just pinups and there's no storytelling. There's no flow. There's no, there's no comic book, you know, it's. Yeah. Um, and, and now again, I, yeah, I don't pick things up, but you know, I, I see stuff on the internet and I'll at least do it. And, the drawing is better. I mean, there's a lot more realistic drawing, but it, it just doesn't have the movement or flow. And it, it's like watching TV sometimes. Um, you know, it's just pictures of people talking and it doesn't, it misses some kind of dynamism where um, if in ECs where a lot of times it's just people talking, there's seems to be some kind of sense of movement and drama in there. So. Yeah, I was just in a video the other day where I was talking about Mike Sikowski and how um, he's a bit of an acquired taste because he's not concerned with making his characters look good. He's concerned with imbuing them with energy. So yeah. his, his drawings for me, they have all this energy and sometimes they're almost intentionally ugly because the characters are so like, like you know. Yeah, those big barrel chested. Uh, it just yeah. moves, it like move the whole, it's movement the whole time and so I'd much rather have that than something that's really well drawn, but there's 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 no life in it, you know. Yeah, um, one one of my favorite periods is kind of that silver bronze cusp at DC, where um, yeah, I kind of had the end of Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis and Inferior Five, and you know you had people like Sikowski and Oxner, and you know you had Sparling doing things where it's just kind of it doesn't look like comic book art quite as much anymore, or, or they, but there's, like I said, there's an energy and movement to it and some humor and, you know, trying to be fun. Um, you know, I think when Adams had such a, an influence that everyone trying to make things real and it, it, it doesn't always work with, uh, with superheroes. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, Kirby, was like, it wasn't real, but it was the truth, I guess, is what you could say. You know, it's like, here's the character, here's the motion, here's the action. And, you know, here's just, I'm just gonna portray that without trying to make it look like what it might look like in real life. Yeah. All right, well, I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, oh, really enjoyed this and um, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, MDG. I hope you enjoyed hearing his origin stories. 
Next time around in Origin Stories, we'll be joined by a new guest. And, of course, in the regular podcast, we've got some exciting things coming up, including a two-part look at Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. Hope you enjoyed, and I'll see you next time. Origins, Origins, it's where we come from, it's where we've been. Everyone's got one.